We're coming to the end of our series on, on Mark's Gospel. We actually have, today is the end of uh, when we've been moving through chapter by chapter going forward, and then next week we're going to have one more that ties in with Thanksgiving. I had to fit something in there because the way the church calendar falls this year, um, next week is uh, not the beginning of Advent, it's actually the week after. So there's, boy, if you haven't been a part of a church before that um, celebrates the season of Advent, I know I never was growing up, uh, we'll be talking more about that. But it's the four Sundays leading up to Christmas Day. So that will begin, um, not next week, but the week after, this place will be transformed, it'll look amazing, and we'll have four Sundays um, where we'll be looking at parts of the Christmas story leading up to Christmas Eve, which happens to be a Sunday. That's why it throws everything off just a little bit this year, because we will have a, um, a shorter, less formal Sunday or Christmas Eve morning service for those of you who want to come. I know some of you will be with family, and, and maybe if they're here, feel welcome to bring them, because what we're going to do is have a, a short service with the kids in, inside involved with us, and then we're going to go, for those who want to, go do a tradition that we started years ago when we used to worship at the Senior Center here in Stanwood, and that is to go caroling in the Senior Center, which, um, believe it or not, I know I'm up here every Sunday singing, um, I am, don't consider myself a singer, and I've never enjoyed caroling, but I do like going to the Senior Center because there's a number of folks who don't have family close by, um, who are often are quite lonely. And they love it. They, they don't care what it sounds like. They just love it. So Adeline um, Rowley is kind of organizing that for us this year. So anyone wants to do that afterwards, I'll have some flyers up that she made to help remind everybody of that as we move towards that. So that's the plan going forward. Today we're in Mark 15. We're going to be reading verses 25 to 39. And as we do, I just want to remind you that when we began in Mark, I said one of the key questions that comes up over and over in this gospel, that I still think is the most important question for all of us to answer in our life, is the question of who is this man, Jesus? And sometimes you find people asking that question very similar to that. Sometimes you find Jesus asking people, his disciples that question. Sometimes you just see it in the questioning of people after they see something Jesus has done. And we're going to see a number of folks asking or answering that question as we read this text where we come to Jesus on the cross. <clears throat> Beginning in verse 25 of chapter 15. It was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two bandits, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by derided him, shaking their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests, along with the scribes, were also mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of the Israel, come down from the cross now, so that we may believe and we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also taunted him. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. At three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, "Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani." Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
When some of the bystanders heard it, they said, listen, he's calling out for Elijah. And someone ran, filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a stick and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Then Jesus gave a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now when the centurion, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was God's son. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we come to this moment in the scriptures that is so central to our faith, so central to the life of the early church. We have crosses we wear around our necks. We have crosses on our walls and in our homes. And yet, it's a deeply troubling thing to think about and read about when human beings are treated in this way, much less when the King of Kings is put on the cross. So despite the familiarity, Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would use this time as we meditate on your word to speak to us and reveal to us all we might need to hear. In your name we pray. Amen. So we have Jesus on the cross, and you'll notice just in what we read that Mark's um, gaze, if you will, if he was shooting a, a film or a video, is on those around the cross. Not necessarily on the suffering of Jesus as much as it is on how those around the cross are responding to him and what's happening to him. So we have those who are walking by. The Romans, I think I mentioned this before, but the Romans, you know, crucifixion was a way of controlling conquered peoples. It was meant to terrorize. We would call it a form of terrorism or torture. It was meant to get people to um, get in line. Roman citizens, if you had a citizenship card from Rome, you were not allowed to be crucified. Only non-citizens could be crucified. So when they had a place like um, what they called Judea, that they had conquered, they would, whenever people get out of line who weren't citizens, they would make an example and a show of them, they had a centurion who would be in charge of four other soldiers, and they would make up a, a crucifixion squad, and they would go to the busiest road coming in and out of a city, and they would put these live men and women up on the side of the road for every person walking in and out to see for days and days and days. As an example, if you get out of line, If you go against Rome, this will happen to you. And as people walk by, they see uh, there's always a a, charge, their sentence, you will, their crime, written on top of the cross. And in this case, on top of Jesus' cross, it says, King of the Jews. This is crime. So those walking by, as they're going by, they look up and what have these men been killed for? And many of them begin to mock Jesus. Hey, isn't this the guy who said he was going to rebuild the temple in three days? After he destroyed it? He can't even save himself. Now, we know from the Gospels that what Jesus was referring to was his own body as a temple. 
that he would bring it back in three days. And some will certainly make that connection in, a, in the three days after the crucifixion. But for now, they're walking by and they're not understanding that. And they make an incorrect assumption, which you're going to find in all those who answer the question about who Jesus is. And they begin to, their answer is simply, he's not powerful. He can't be powerful because he's hanging on the cross. Romans are killing him. They make an incorrect assumption that if Jesus had power, he would use it for himself and to save himself. The cross changed everything in terms of how we as Christians understand the meaning of power. Because the cross told us that the most powerful thing in the universe is to give up your power for the sake of others. That that is true power. Jesus reveals that as true power when he says, I'm not going to use my power for my benefit, but I'm going to use my power, as we talked about last week, to put upon myself all of the weight, the guilt, the burden, the shame of every sin that's ever been committed and ever will be committed. We talked last week about how hard that is, how much we all struggle with just the burden of our own sin. And Jesus takes true power to put that all upon himself. It's not the wooden beam that he's physically unable to carry that's weighing him down. It's the burden of that sin, the pain that sin has caused, the shame. And as a result of the power that Jesus has, sins are forgiven. Remember there was some instances in Mark when Jesus said... um, for example, when the man was lowered down through the roof. I don't think we, we did preaching on this, but if you read the, the Gospel of Mark, um, the man was lowered down through the roof, and Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. And everyone kind of scoffed and mocked at him, and he said, well, which is harder to say, your sins are forgiven, or stand up and take your mat and walk? But so that you will know the Son of Man has power to forgive sins, he said, take up your mat and walk. So this man who's paralyzed, he gets up, and he walks away. But the more powerful act is to forgive sins. And the, the religious leaders standing around rightly said, well, this is blasphemy. Well, they, it's not rightly blasphemy, but they rightly said, it is blasphemy if he's not God, because only God can forgive sins. Right? Because that's the more powerful thing. And Jesus, by his death on the cross, and there's a lot of ways to explain it. We call those theories of atonement. We've talked about those before. There, there's a lot of different ways we can understand it. But however we understand it, what happened was... Even today, when we come and we say, Lord, I've sinned, forgive me in the name of Jesus, the one who died for me, we have forgiveness. It's that powerful. So those walking by, their their answer to who is Jesus, they're saying, well, he's someone who's not powerful. And they actually got it completely wrong, didn't they? And the answer of the religious leaders, it says they mocked him in the same way, they're standing around, and his, their answer is that he's not the Savior, he's not the Messiah, he's not the King. You know, if, if he's the Messiah, well, let him come down from the cross and then we'll believe too, right? We know that they were instrumental in having him crucified and putting him up on the cross. And they say, he saved others, but he can't save himself. So a part of them is also answering that he's not powerful, but more importantly, they're saying he's not a savior because he could save others, but not himself. 
He's not the Messiah, because if he was, he would come down from that cross. And he's certainly not a king, because if he's a king, he'd have an army fighting for him right now, and they would save him from this death. And if, any of, if he would just come down and show us, then we would believe. We say he's not a savior because he saved others, but he can't save himself. And so again, we find them assuming something that just is simply not true, which is that Jesus would save himself if he were able. Because they're looking inside their own hearts. Well, if it was me and, and I could save others, if I could save myself, I would. And we talked about that last week when we looked at the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus said, hey, if it's possible, Father, if there's a way for this cup of suffering to pass from me, you know, may it be so. But if not, not my will but yours be done. And he obviously receives the answer from the Father that this is the way it needs to happen and this is God's will. And so he could save himself. But he chooses not to. And they have no idea that when they're mocking him and saying he can't save himself, that what's happening is he is saving all of humanity. Both past, the present, and the future, all who would call upon his name are saved. And they say he's not the Messiah because they, they're looking for the Messiah, which that word just means the anointed one. Christ and Messiah, they're all the same word. They come from different, um, you know, languages, but they all mean the same thing. They're referring to someone anointed that they were looking for in the scriptures of the Old Testament who would come and save everyone. And so we see often there's a misunderstanding because they think the Messiah is going to be someone who's going to save them from the oppression of Rome. There would be no more crosses on the side of the road. There'd be no one who could force you to carry a cross. Simon of Cyrene in Mark's gospel, he's walking by and they say, hey, you, come carry this cross or else, <laughs> right? And he has to carry it. They, they could do this kind of thing and they think, well, the Messiah is going to save us from all of that. They're going to save us from this political oppression that we're experiencing and they're going to, it's going to set up a new reign. And they were, they were right in a sense, but they didn't understand the largeness of the salvation and how it extended so much beyond any particular political power. So they're looking for a Messiah that would not be killed by the Roman soldiers, but would kill the Roman soldiers. That's the kind of Messiah that they're looking for. In Luke 4, um, the Gospel of Luke, at the very beginning, Jesus goes into the synagogue and he reads from Isaiah, and this is what he says. He says, the spirit of the, I mean, sorry, yeah, he reads from Isaiah. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. See that word anointing? That's the messianic word, the anointed one. He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and let the oppressed go free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So this is how Jesus identified the Messiah, using the Old Testament, he said, this is my anointing. To bring good news to the poor, to release the captives, to give sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free. And of course, it's much bigger than just a, a literal blindness or, you know, literally a government oppressing you. He's saying, no, it's the oppression of sin. 
It's the spiritual blindness that you face. And that comes out in other scriptures. And then he says, after he reads from the prophet Isaiah, he says, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your presence. So he is the Messiah. It's just simply not the kind of Messiah that they were looking for or that they necessarily even wanted at that time. His anointing is being accomplished on the cross. And through that, all of us, all of the oppressed, will be set free. And they say he's not a king. And yet we as Christians, we say, no, he's not just a king. He is actually the king of all kings. He's the ruler of all. And this, they can't fathom that. They can't even get close to that one because Jesus doesn't have any political power in their sight. I mean, everyone who's got the political power wants him dead. There was all these different factions within within Jerusalem, within these different religious communities. Every single one of them unite together because they want Jesus dead. And then they even go to the ones they really hate, the Romans, and they say, would you kill him for us? Because we, you know, you won't allow us to kill anyone, so you do it for us. And he gets the Romans on their side by saying, well, he claims to be the king of kings, or he claims to be the king of the Jews. That's treason. You have to kill him. And so they put the political pressure. So everyone who's got this political power wants him dead. Jesus has no army. He has no title. He has no lands. Any of the things that they would look for when they look for a king, he doesn't have those. And yet we know he has an army of angels that he could call upon to come and rescue him. We know that he has many titles that have not yet been fully revealed to them, such as Son of God, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and we could go on and on. And we also know that not only does he have land, but all the land was created through him. It says all the land, you know, we're finally discovering and able to see other planets. That land is his too. He created that. It's all his. He is the king of kings. So they can't see any of that as they look at Jesus on the cross. And so even those who are crucified next to him, Mark doesn't give us all the details, but we know later that it was one of them in particular who was mocking Jesus. Even those who are dying, they see him simply as a fool deserving death. They're, they're guilty men. We, we, they know they're guilty. And they probably know Jesus is innocent. And they just see him as someone foolish enough to let himself be caught up in all this. And to be killed. He claimed to be someone great. They had heard about him, I'm sure. And here he is, hanging on the cross with the powerful people walking by and mocking him. So Jesus sits there. He endures all this. By the way, that there's an interesting little piece there where Jesus is, is saying, um, you know, they think he's crying out to Elijah because there's a similar words. He's calling out to God. He's quoting scripture. Um, that's a whole another sermon. It comes from one of the Psalms. And he's saying, um, you know, Eloi, Eloi. And they say, oh, he's calling for Elijah. And they believe that Elijah would come before the Messiah, which he did. He was John the Baptist, Jesus said, if people would accept it. But they, so they get that sour wine, and that always really kind of confused me, because it's like, well, why would they say, wait, let's see if he's going to call Elijah, and then they give him this, this sour wine. Well, the sour wine was a, a drink that the soldiers had, they used it as a stimulant. 
Was, I can't, I mean, probably tasted terrible. But so they're trying to, they want him to stay alive longer to see if Elijah will come and rescue him. So it's still just another way of sort of adding insult to injury and mocking him. And then he breathes his last. The darkness comes upon the land. The other gospels tell us there's an earthquake. And of course, the powerful sign, which they wouldn't have been able to see from where they were standing on on, on Golgotha, but the curtain in the temple tears apart. Symbolizing in a very powerful way, being torn from top to bottom, that the place where God dwells is no longer inside there. The place where people worship is no longer there. But the Holy of Holies, God's presence is accessible to all. And the centurion, this one, remember, he's an he's a, um, officer. He's in charge of a hundred men. And they always took one centurion with four soldiers to do these crucifixion squats. And so he's there, and he's watching all this going on, and he's participating in it, obviously, a little bit. And he sees these different things happen. And something about the way Jesus dies on the cross causes him to say, this is God's son. Surely this was God's son. So the only one who gets it in Mark's gospel, the only one who answers the question, who is this man correctly, is this Roman centurion, his executioner, this outsider, this Gentile, who sees beyond just a simple rebellious man being killed, just one of thousands this centurion would have been, had seen killed. I mean, this guy's, this is his job. If you have a job like this, we know from people who were involved in atrocities like, uh, you know, World War II and the concentration camps, people have a way of hardening themselves against feeling anything, and they turn the people they're killing into objects, into animals, beneath human beings, in order to get themselves to do this kind of act. And yet something... And what happens in front of him with Jesus gets him to say, this is the Son of God. And the only answer could be that God revealed this to him. It's the only possible explanation. 1 Corinthians 12, 3, Paul says, Therefore I want you to understand that no one speaking by the Spirit of God ever says, let Jesus be cursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. The first one in Mark's Gospel to get it right and to confess him in faith is an enemy of Jesus. He's an executioner. He's someone who abuses his power. He's an outsider. It's not the religious scholars. It's not the priests. It's not the common people walking by. It's not the disciples. It's a soldier. If you have ever said, Jesus is Lord. If you have ever confessed that he is the son of God. Then you need to know you did not do that by your own power. I think that's why this man is here in front of us in Mark's Gospel. He wants us to know that the most unlikely person at the foot of the cross to finally answer the question correctly is the least likely person to do it. 
He's us. And as we think about the question of power, and we think about the cross and all that it represents, the question that comes up for me is, what power do I have? And it's probably more than you think. We discredit ourselves a lot on this issue. Your wealth gives you power. We talked about this in a recent sermon. Just by virtue of having something like a car and a home and a job and living in this place, your wealth gives you power, more power than you know. If we could take you right now with your checking account and transplant you to any developing country into a small town or village, you would be one of the most powerful people in that place by virtue of your wealth. Your citizenship gives you power. Just like at the time, the Roman citizenship was the gold standard for much of the world to have a U.S. citizenship is powerful. Wherever you go in this world, you have a government who stands behind you. Your education gives you power. If you've graduated from elementary school, you already have more education than many people in the world. Your education allows you to know how to do things and to navigate life in a way that gives you power for good for yourself or good for others or for no one but yourself. Your job, if you have a job, gives you power. Your role as a parent or as a grandparent gives you power. So we discount our power. I can describe other ways we have power. But the cross for us, as we read this story, and we see the most powerful man in that scene, the Roman centurion, first of all, abusing that power by torturing a human being, and then secondly, coming to the point where he is able to confess this is God's son. We see that in the scene, and we should reflect also on our own power, and why it is that God worked through us in the power of his Holy Spirit to allow us to confess Jesus is Lord. Is it for ourselves? Is that what the cross represents? Because that's why everyone walking by misunderstood. They didn't get it because they thought, well, if he has power, he would use it to get himself off. If he was a savior, he would free himself. If he was the Messiah or the king, he would get the army of people behind him and and they would save him. That's how they understood power. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 says, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. So I will boast, this is Apostle Paul speaking, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in you. This is where we often get it so wrong too because we think, well, I don't really have the power to do much about the things I see in this world, the the things that Jesus said he was anointed to come do and that he called the disciples to be a part of, setting the oppressed free, caring for the poor, giving sight to the blind. We say, well, we're powerless to do any of those things. And yet Jesus says, where you see your weakness, that's where my power is made perfect. You see, it's not our power. It's God's power dwelling in us through the Holy Spirit. So what are you doing with the power you have? I, I believe this is where, um, the, as we get towards the end of the series, this is where we need to stop and reflect back 
on the things that we've talked about. As disciples, we're called to follow Jesus. We're called to follow him and using the power that's given to us, not for our own benefit, but rather for the benefit of those around us. And hear this, also for the benefit of those who are undeserving. You can't argue, I I don't see how you could possibly argue that that Roman centurion was worthy of God giving him the ability to claim and confess at the foot of the cross, this is the Son of God. He didn't deserve that. God chose him. Why? We don't know the rest of his story. I wish we had all the stories of so many who stood around there. We get so little. But we are a part of the continuing story. So now we're there. Every time we gather to worship, we are celebrating the resurrection power of Jesus. That's why I can preach on the cross and I don't have to say, well, wait, now we've got to flip forward to the resurrection because every time we gather, we gather together celebrating because we know that that is the end of the story. We know that that cross for us is a symbol of power because Jesus overcame that cross. And so we can wear a symbol of torture around our necks with pride. Because we say God's power is made perfect in weakness. Let's pray. Lord, it's hard for us to see ourselves through your eyes. So easy for us to focus on our own weakness and inability. So easy for us to look at the problems in the world and throw up our hands and say, we're powerless to make any change. And truly, we are, but not through you. God, help us to live with the kind of power that we put others first, that we see displayed on the cross. Help us to live with the resurrection power that Jesus gives to all those who call upon his name so that we know this world, this life, does not get the final word. Help us to live with courage and love as your disciples. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.